So as we continue our, our series today, we've been looking at uh, being at the heart of new life. And I want to start with a question today. So I want to ask you uh, a simple question, but a really kind of profound one if you process it a little bit. And here's, here it is. Uh, aside from your family members, who are the most important people in your life? So if I just ask you to kind of list the important people, you might put down your, hopefully your spouse, maybe you'll put down uh, maybe one of the staff members, but your favorite staff members, not the other ones. <laughs> but aside from your family, who are the most important people in your life? And if you were to write down those names, and then right beside that name, you were to put a brief description as to why those people are important, I, I think there's a really good chance that you would find your description of that person falls into one of three categories. There's a good chance they would fall into the category of being a close friend, of someone who you can lean on in, as you journey through the different adventures of life, the different challenges we go through in life. Perhaps the name you would write down would be a person who is a mentor to you, somebody that you have the opportunity to learn from, who you have given permission to speak into your life, and there are some parts of it that they are shaping through their influence. Or a third possibility is, is the name you write down would be a student, somebody who has invited you to speak into their lives and gives you a sense of purpose and ability to apply the knowledge and the experiences that you've had in the past to bring those into the present as you now have a chance to shape their life. Now, these three relationships are critical for every person, especially when we find ourselves in times of opportunity or times of challenge. When I first got into ministry, my very first ministry job is, is what they refer to as an educational internship. Here's what that means. That means we need your help. We see that you have some abilities and some skills that we could gain uh, benefit from, but we can't afford to pay you. So we're going to give you the educational experience of sharing who you are with us through this educational internship. So that was the very first ministry job that I officially had, and I came alongside as an assistant to the pastor of adult ministries at another church here in town. And basically what that involved was coaching some small group leaders, uh, teaching a Sunday school class once a week, and doing a whole lot of administrative work for this pastor. It was more of a, uh, an exercise in being empowered more so than being guided, but I did well for a number of weeks that I was doing that role, and so much so that the church started to gain some confidence in me, and to the point where the pastor I was serving under, it came time for him to go on a sabbatical, and I thought, well, how do we fill the gap while he's on sabbatical? I thought, we well, you know, let's bring Mark into the job, and he can start to do this at a different level for us. Now, when they asked me for that, I said, yes, immediately. Why? Because, well, God had called me to ministry, and here's a ministry opportunity, so I'm going to jump into this, and I'm going to take on this role. And I went in to cover everything. And I really quickly realized I was not prepared for everything that came with that role. I was not equipped through my educational internship to take on the whole position of pastor of adult ministries. It was beyond my own experience, my own knowledge that I had at that particular time. You know, I'll never forget the first day that I walked into the office, because up to that point, I had done a lot of my work in the evenings based upon the schedule I had and the type of work that I was doing in this internship. I, I met with people in the evenings, so I had never really been in the office kind of Monday to Friday. So I walked in Monday morning, and I walked up to the front counter, and there was Deanna. I said, hello, Deanna. She says, you must be Mark, because she hadn't met me either. 
I said, yes, I am. And she said, let me show you to your office. I said, okay. And so we went into this massive corner office with this big desk, smaller than the ginormous desk I have now, which is bigger than anybody possibly needs. But I sat down in this chair. I had my list of responsibilities that I had not really been told or shown how to do. And so I I sat down and I I put my laptop down and I, I lined up my pencils and I put my pad of paper on the desk and I folded my hands. And now what do I do? So I straightened my pencils. I fixed my paper. What do I do? So I was in a role where I thought, well, maybe, maybe there's a guidebook around somewhere. So I opened the drawer and I found a guidebook that said, <laughs> Ministry for Dummies <laughs> and a resource for the rest. No, I didn't find that in the drawer. But it would have been helpful on that particular day because I was in over my head for where I was. So here's what I did have, though. What I did have is I did have some relationships that I could draw upon in this particular moment that I was in. You see, I was going to seminary at this time, and so I had some friends at seminary that I could, I could talk to, I could lean on a little bit. We'd go sit in the library there, and we would share some of the challenges of ministry, and we would talk about different problems we were having and how to solve them. We would dream about what we could do with these ministries that we had been given. I had pastors on staff. There was another eight pastors in this church that I was serving in that I could go to and ask for help. And they were wonderful with that. So I would go to this, I went to the lead pastor one day when I had to preach my very first sermon and, and I was kind of stressed about it and I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out my, on my own in my office and I had to go off to another meeting, but I thought, well, I got a couple minutes left, so I'll just pop into his office before I go. So I went into the lead pastor's office and I said, Ed, I just got about 15 minutes before my next meeting, but how do you preach? And, and, and Ed was like, in 15 minutes, eh? Let me, let me see what I can do. Now, Ed was a wonderful pastor. Actually, in about five minutes, he gave me a framework with which I could use to start doing some of the research. The very first funeral I had to do, I needed a pastor to come alongside and help me. You see, the first funeral I had was not for, not for a dear 80, 95-year-old lady who had, who had you know, suffered cancer, and there was a mixture of mercy and grace in her passing. That wasn't my first funeral. The first funeral I got called upon to do was for a 12-year-old girl. I needed a pastor to come alongside me. I did not know how to do that. I need someone to come and help me. But then to actually do the ministry, I had a wonderful list of leaders. And so I took the knowledge, the experience that I did have, and I, and I shared it with them, and I empowered them to go forth and do the ministry. And in the end, when the sabbatical was over, because I could lean on those relationships and, and the pastor I was serving under came back, they, they were so thrilled with what had been happening that they actually promoted him to a different level within the church and, and made me the permanent full-time adult ministries pastor to continue on. And, and I know it was God's blessing in my life for that opportunity, but I also am well aware from that day to this very day that I would not have made it without these critical relationships and being able to have these things in my life having somebody that I could lean on, somebody I could learn from, and people that I had the opportunity to lead. In this sermon series, we've been looking at some of the key relationships that exist in Jesus' life. Those relationships that have led to new life and people that he encountered. And so today, we're going to briefly consider Jesus' investment in the lives of three particular disciples and how they were able to, to lean on each other how they were able to learn from him, and these guys then went on to lead 
others within the early church. But along the way, we're also going to get really practical. And we're going to start to consider what would it look like? What, what could it look like if West Meadows was, if we were to continue investing in West Meadows as a place where everyone could lean, learn, and lead? What could that look like if everyone at West Meadows could lean, learn, and lead? Let's have a look at these guys that were in relationship with Jesus first as we contemplate that. See, all the disciples had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. All of them were there, but there were three guys in particular that had this unique relationship, this inner three. And we see this uh, in particular in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 5 in particular, we see for the first time a phrase that says, he did not allow anyone to follow him except Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. On, on multiple occasions, these three guys experienced unique events in the life and the ministry of Jesus. He didn't allow anyone else to come along with him. Jesus invested more into these guys than anyone else, and the impact is undeniable. The, the three quick examples we see in the Gospel of Mark where this happened. We see in, in Mark chapter 5 the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Now, Jairus is a leader in the synagogue whose daughter was sick and she was starting to, to die. And so he runs to Jesus says, Jesus, my daughter's about to die. Come quickly, you can heal her. And on the way to go to Jairus' house, uh, Jesus is kind of on a bit of a tangent with some other needs that came up and other situations that happened. And, and a servant comes along and says, don't bother him anymore, your, your daughter has died. But Jesus presses on and, and we get to near, near the end of chapter 5. We see that Jesus arrives at this man's home. But he only allows Peter, James, and John and the parents to come into the room with him. See, this was an opportunity for them and them alone to have this unique learning experience. To observe Jesus at work in a way that nobody else had a chance to see. And, and at the end of chapter 5, it says Jesus told them not to tell anybody else what had transpired there. That this was sort of a, a for their eyes only type of lesson. Read a little bit further in, in chapter 9, we come to the transfiguration. Again, Jesus takes with him up the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and they have this opportunity to experience this unique, this incredible revealing of Jesus' heavenly glory upon this mountaintop. An experience that, that confounded them in the moment, but would incredibly shape their ministries and their understanding of who Jesus was going forward. Because these guys would write letters in the future, that some of which we find in our Bible today, that, that Peter wrote and, and that John wrote. And in those writings, we see them saying things like, we have seen his glory, speaking of Jesus. And, and they say other things like, we have been eyewitnesses to his majesty undoubtedly pointing back to this unique experience they had in the transfiguration when Jesus' glory was fully revealed to them. But then we also see an opportunity at Gethsemane in chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is merely moments away from being arrested and flogged and crucified. And when he has the literal weight of the world upon his shoulders, he goes to the garden with all of his disciples. But at the very beginning of this chapter, when they arrive at the garden together, it says he went a little further with Peter, James, and John, they separated themselves from the bigger group and he got into an even smaller group of these three guys he had invested in for three and a half years. And it's there that he fell to the ground. It's there that he, he cried out, that he prayed, and he invited them to come around him and to lean on each other in this great time of need. So there's a special relationship Jesus had with these three guys. They could learn from him. They could lean on each other. 
But then after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, they also went on to lead other people in an incredible way. See, we always knew, we always knew Peter was like the spokesman for the group of the disciples. But, but following Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon all the followers, Peter's the guy who stands up and addresses the crowd at Jerusalem. And we're told that day that thousands came to faith through his bold proclamation as he was leading others, as he started leading the early church. We see a guy like James who preached throughout the Holy Land and, and beyond. James preached throughout the Holy Land, but they went out through all of the known Roman Empire to the point of, of modern-day Spain, where to this very day, pilgrims of the Christian faith will go make the, the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage to a place in Spain where it's believed that his body is buried. And then John, who planted multiple churches throughout modern-day Turkey, who wrote five books that we have in our Bible today, including Revelation, which was this incredible vision of the end times that John was blessed to be given. See, these three guys had an incredible relationship that Jesus invested in. They could learn from him. They could lean on each other. And they went forth to lead others to shape the church to know what it is today. Imagine for a moment. Imagine the impact we could have by investing in these relationships. The impact we could have at West Meadows is we continue to invest in these relationships where everybody has a chance to lean, to learn, and to lead. Imagine the new life that could spring forth from that, that we could see in ourselves and in those around us if we invested in these relationships. Well, to really help you understand what that looks like, for the rest of the time that I have here today, we're going to take a look at these three individually and understand what that could look like. The first one is this, someone to lean on. What we're talking about here is a friend, a really close, good friend. And one of the best New Testament examples that I can think of when I speak of a, someone to lean on, a friend, is a guy that we don't talk about too much, but a very prominent person in the book of Acts, a guy named uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Barnabas. A guy named Barnabas. We first introduced to him in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, where his name is actually not Barnabas. His name is actually Joseph of Cyprus, but they call him Barnabas. Why? Because Barnabas means son of encouragement. See, that's what he was known for. He was known as being the son of encouragement. And so he's an important guy within the church, but we know him primarily because he had an important relationship with Paul. See, Paul, when we first get introduced to him, is a guy who's persecuting Christians. He's trying to keep the Christian movement suppressed. When he finds out you're a Christian, he's going to arrest you. He might beat you up. He may even have you killed. He's persecuting the Christian faith. But then as Paul is on a journey to the road to Damascus, he has this encounter with Jesus where, where Jesus like, pretty much literally hits him upside the head and blinds him. And through this encounter he has with Jesus and the conversation they have, he goes from persecuting the church to encouraging people to become followers of Jesus Christ. Now, when he shows up at his destination and he shows up among the Christians, goes, hey, I'm one of you guys now. Obviously, they're suspicious. Right, you arrested my neighbor last week, Paul. Right, you're one of us. And so there's obviously a suspicion and there's a challenge to him being among them. What happens? Barnabas stands up. Barnabas stands up, says, you may not trust him, but you trust me. And I'm going to vouch for this guy. I have Paul's back. This is a genuine thing that happened. He is now one of us. Barnabas stands up for him. A little while later on, the church in Antioch wants to send off some missionaries together. And so they send off Paul. They say, Paul, we're going to pair you up with somebody. We're going to pair you up with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to go shoulder to shoulder with you as you go on this missionary journey. 
And it's not all five-star hotels and fancy cuisine. Paul tells us these missionary journeys were hard, that they were shipwrecked, that they were imprisoned together, that they stood shoulder to shoulder as they were beaten, as they were in hunger and in thirst, and they thought they would fear for their lives at times. But as we keep reading about Barnabas, it finds out at a time where Paul and Barnabas get together and they go, you know, that last trip was so much fun, let's just do it again. And so they decide to go on a third trip. But this time, Barnabas and Paul kind of get face-to-face a little bit because there's a dispute that breaks out. See, the last time they went on a trip, Mark was with them as well. But Mark took off halfway through. So Barnabas is like, no, ever the encourager. No, come on, give Mark another chance. Let's take him with us again. Paul's like, there's no way. I'm not going to risk it. And so face-to-face, they got into this conflict with each other. But they had the ability, the relationship, that they could do that. They could stand face-to-face and have those hard conversations. Now, I go through the story of Paul and Barnabas because we can learn some important lessons about what I'm talking about here when we speak of a friend, someone to lean on. So I'm not talking about an acquaintance. I'm talking about a person that you have invested in, somebody where you can get real with them into the real stuff of life, where you can lean on them. Let me explain this. I'm going to ask Andrew to come join me for a minute as we describe this a little bit more. You see, what we see in the story of Paul and Barnabas is that Barnabas had Paul's back. See, they stood back to back. In pilot language, this is Barnabas saying, Paul, I got your six. What that means is no one's going to get you from behind. No one's going to sneak up on you. If anyone's trying to attack you, to stab you in the back, I'm watching. I'm not going to let that happen. But at the same time, you may not be able to see me. I may not always be with you. You may not be always able to see me, but you can trust me. You never need to question my loyalty because if I hear of somebody saying negative things about you, if I hear that there's slander, I'm not only going to step in and stop it, I'm going to speak well of you because I've got your back. We're going to lean on each other back to back. That's what we're talking about. But Barnabas also stood shoulder to shoulder with Paul. Shoulder to shoulder with a friend. I don't mean sitting in a movie theater shoulder to shoulder. I don't mean at the nail salon. Their nails done side by side. Pretty good. Thanks. I don't mean driving somewhere. I mean going through the hard times of life when, when you have a doctor's appointment and you need someone to go with you. Whether you need a ride or you need support. When it comes time to say, who are we going to invite to the funeral? When we're going through job questions and challenges at work. Who am I going to confide in? Who's going to pray for me and walk with me through that? When my kids go astray, who am I going to share that with? And who am I going to have the courage to cry in front of? Some of you were shoulder to shoulder going through life's journeys like that together. Back to back, shoulder to shoulder, but then also face to face. Ladies are better at this than guys are. Guys find this really awkward to look each other in the eye. Especially if we don't say anything and we just stand here quietly. <laughs> don't blink. See, the ladies do this, and, and, and they can talk to each other. They, they can encourage each other. They lift each other up, and they say, well, come on, what's really going on in there? Guys, we, we make jokes because it's awkward. It's easier just to break the tension. Uh, Andrew, I mean to tell you, I'm a little concerned. Your, your hair seems to be slipping to the bottom of your head as opposed to the top. So we make jokes to lighten the mood. But, but we need to have guys where we can do this, where we can stand face to face and actually have real conversations. Like, 
Andrew, you know, last week when we were all together, kind of hanging out, there's that, that moment, I don't know if you remember or not, but, you know, the whole room kind of went silent because the way that you spoke to Jacqueline, and I don't know if you guys have talked about it, but just as your brother, we've been talking about how, how we need to be loving and honoring our wives, and I just wanted to bring it to your attention and say we missed the mark on that one. But I'm with you. If you want to talk about that or if you need any help, I'm here for you. We need to have these conversations as well, face-to-face, and not everybody can have with us. We had enough looking at each other? All right, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) See, these are are important relationships that we need to have, someone to lean on back-to-back, shoulder-to-shoulder, face-to-face. In Scripture, we read this in Proverbs chapter 18, a distinction between acquaintance and the type of relationship I was just describing. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. See, we're not talking here about the people that you just meet in a foyer or in a restaurant or in a hall somewhere. Those relationships naturally happen. You smile, you wave, you talk about the weather. That's not what I'm talking about here. We're talking about people where you invest in each other's lives, where you press into each other, and you're only going to have a few of these, but they're critical to have. Having someone to, <clears throat> to lean on, to press into, tends to be something that I had to learn as I was going through my time as a pastor. It's a bit of, a, it's a bit of an occupational hazard to be a pastor. We, we tend to be kind of des- uh, like distant and, and private, especially in those relationships where we have to get real. It's a bit of a hazard that goes to the territory of being a pastor, but we need to press into that. And so how do you do that? How, how do we do that? Well... It, very simply, remember what mom always said? If you want to have a friend, you have to be a friend. It's not always any more complicated than that. So how do we do that as adults in the worlds in which we live? Well, I would very briefly suggest this. Have a look at who is it that God has brought into your life that demonstrates character, that demonstrates trust, that gives you some sense of evidence that it's worth the risk to press in. When you've identified who that person is, take the first step and be that person to them. Try to step into their life. Share some of yourself. Go first and share some of your life with them and see if they follow you into a deeper and deeper relationship together. And see where it goes. See what it develops into. You know the best place to find a person like that is in a life group. Because you're already doing life together in the context of a life group. And after all, that's where Jesus found Peter, James, and John was in his life group. Now that was something that I was able to learn from another person. Another important relationship that I had in my life, and that being a mentor. Someone that I learned from. And another example that we see in the New Testament of this is another relationship that Paul had. But this time a relationship Paul had with a guy named Timothy. Now Timothy was a young adult who was raised up in a faithful Jewish home. He had a mom named Eunice and a grandmother named Lois. And when Paul came to Lystra, where, where they lived, and, and Paul arrived there and started preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, they, they heard him preach, and his, the whole household, mother, grandmother, son, all came to faith in Jesus Christ and became active in the local church. And as that happened, the elders within this church noticed something special about Timothy. They, they kind of called him out and called him up to, to start leading in different areas. And they put him under Paul's wing. They paired him up with Paul for Paul to be a mentor to Timothy. 
And one of the ways that Paul mentored him is on these missionary journeys. When, when Paul would go tour around, Timothy would come with him in some of the later trips. And Timothy was trained up under Paul to the point where, where Paul would go off, or Timothy actually go off to be Paul's representative in some of the different churches they had planted later on. He was empowered to go do ministry because of the training he'd received. Now, when we look in the New Testament, we see two books of the Bible, First and Second Timothy, that are named after this guy. And what those are is letters that Paul wrote to Timothy mentoring him. It's these letters Paul wrote to his protege, to his student, encouraging him, giving him advice, instructions, mentoring him on church leadership is what we find within those books. And near the end of the second letter, Paul encourages Timothy with the following words. He says to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you know all about my teachings, this is Paul speaking, you know all about my teachings, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, my sufferings, you know about all these things. Yet the Lord has rescued me from all of that. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and of what you have become convinced of because you know from whom you have learned it. So the first thing I want to suggest you look at when we talk about mentoring is, is be careful who you allow to speak into your life. Be careful who. Know who you're allowing to speak into your life. A few weeks ago, we were talking about leadership a little bit, and I referenced a passage in Matthew chapter 7 where it says, you will know them by their fruit. You will know these leaders if they are good and trustworthy by their fruit. Timothy was blessed with a godly grandmother and a godly mother who raised him up in the faith. That was a foundation of faith and godly example that he had, that he could trust in and he could lean on. We don't really know too much about Tim's father. We do know that he was a, a Greek man who was not necessarily a believer, and there may have been a degree of absence, but Paul was there. Paul stepped into that gap, and Paul lived his life before Timothy. He shared his character, his values, his theology he showed Timothy how to handle hardships, how to, how to handle strife, how to go through all of that maintaining solid faith in Jesus Christ through all of those things he modeled before Timothy. You see, sometimes the messenger is just as important as the message that we receive when it comes time for mentoring. There are some people in this world that are powerful teachers. Some people that I agree with 100% when they, when they talk about what they believe in and what they stand for, and yet I still choose to separate myself from them. Because sometimes the messenger is more important than the message. Friends and organizations that I share values with and that I agree with, but that I go on Facebook, for example, and I look at what they're posting. I look at what they're sharing. I look at the comments that they actually add to that. And I think, you know, the way they're living that out, the way that they're using truth as a weapon to assault people instead of to correct and love people, I want nothing to do with that. Even though I completely agree with what they're doing, the message isn't always the most important thing. But there's character and values that are matter as well. Because you gotta look at the fruit. What is the fruit? What is it producing? And if you sample the fruit and it doesn't taste good, unfollow. The second thing when we talk about mentoring, is it's not always about age. It's always more about maturity. Have you ever had a boss or a pastor, perhaps, who was younger than you, that you had to choose to follow and accept the authority of that person? It's a situation for a lot of people here. I'm younger than a lot of people here. But you know, it's been my life, my entire adult life has essentially been defined by this. 
So they got married and had kids at 20. Career, mortgage, kids, wife, 20 years old. Earlier than a lot of people. I was in management by the time I was 25. The adult ministries pastor of a church of 1,400 at 30. And in all these situations, I would encounter people where, where they had seen the ability that I had and they had seen God's blessing upon me, but instead they would focus upon my age. You haven't got enough gray hairs yet. Some of these sorts of comments that I would hear. And I understood where it came from, but, but it came from a, more of a, a human measurement of things. A human measurement we often look to. Timothy had the same situation. See, he had rose to prominence in the church at an early age. So much of it was the elders who identified. It was the elders who rose him up to this level of prominence. And yet they would measure him from his age. And we know this because in the first letter, early on in the first letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him this. He says, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So when we're looking for a mentor, when we're looking to grant access to our lives and to come under the authority of another person, I want to suggest to you age is a human measurement, but the measurement that, that God calls us to and that Paul calls Timothy to focus upon here is to look at the God-given character and quality and ability that, that God has instilled in them and place them into that situation. So that regardless of age or stage, we all need mentors. And we can't always be looking for people who are necessarily older than us because... Let's face it, eventually that's going to get a smaller and smaller pool to pull upon. But we can look at the people that God has blessed and blessed us with in our lives. How do we do that, though? How do we actually move into finding a mentor? It's one of the biggest questions that I find in, in ministry, but also with, with young adults at times. How do we find these mentors? And one of the first challenges I, we come across is I think the perspective we approach it with. Is, is people come out, and I used to do this too, where I thought, i got to find that one person who is good at everything and wants to meet with me every single week. I can tell you, that guy doesn't exist. That, that lady doesn't exist. Because even if you find somebody who's good at that many things, they probably don't have the time, nor maybe even the interest, in meeting with you every week to school you on everything. Let me tell you what's worked well, really well for me. It's for me to look at who God has brought into my life, to consider what areas do I need to develop? What areas do I need to push into in my own development? Whether that be my spiritual depth, in my ability in certain areas of a pastoring, as a father, as a husband, as a leader, whatever the area may be. Who in my life do I see doing a good job exemplifying that? That one area. And then going to them and saying something like, you know, John, I think I see you as a successful leader in the church. You know, I've got three questions about that that I would love to ask you sometime. Can, can I buy you a cup of coffee next week and ask you those three questions? I have never had anyone say no to me when I approach it from that position. Why? Because I've identified what in particular I want to talk about. It's not this, this huge, you know, I want to talk about everything. There's just one thing I want to call out in you that I see, and I have a specific number of questions. I even give them the questions in advance sometimes. And I can sit with that person, and then they can start to speak into my life in that one area. I've never had anybody say no to me for that. And the other thing I've never said no to me is at the end of that conversation, I go, you know what? Because I haven't sat there and argued with them. I sat there and listened while they talk. So I end the conversation by saying, you know, if I ever had some other questions, could I call you again? And they always say yes as well. 
You see, the idea that one person can do everything for us and that one person can invest in every single, you know, three hours on every single Monday, that just doesn't exist. But you can find one person for certain areas, ask them some specific areas that you need some assistance, and I guarantee you there's a high chance they will say yes. Because of this, when I think about mentors in my life, there are five guys that I lean on, that I learn from, and each of them I use like tools in a tool belt. When a different situation or challenge comes up, I know which tool to pull out. I know which number to dial. I know who I need to buy a cup of coffee for. And they're always there for me. See, Timothy allowed Paul to speak into his life and, and to lead him. And he allowed him to grow. And that allowed him to grow and to rise to some of the challenges that he was facing. But there's another side to that coin. This third relationship. This idea of having somebody to lead of being a student, it's, it's really just the other side of that same Timothy-Paul relationship. So I won't talk about this one for too much because we've, we've talked about the mentoring thing a fair bit already. But I just want to suggest this one thing to you when we talk about having somebody to lead. Don't believe the enemy's lie. Don't believe the enemy's lie. And what is that lie? It's the one that plays in your head when you think about the possibility of you speaking into another person's life. It's the thing that goes through your head when, when somebody says, hey, you know, could, could you answer a few questions for me? And the enemy's lie is this. You're not needed. Your skills are outdated. You're not good enough. You got rejected once, you're just going to get rejected again, so don't even bother trying or any variation of that lie that the enemy says to us. Because it's not true. If we're going to succeed as, as individuals, as families, if we're going to succeed as a church, of being a place that invests in relationships so that everybody has someone to lean, learn, and lead, we cannot believe that lie. And in place of that lie, I encourage you to listen to what God says instead when he looks at you. When God looks at you, in Ephesians 2.10, we're told that God looks at you and he says, you are God's handiwork. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. See, God looks at you and he sees a work of art, a masterpiece, one that he has professionally, personally designed, crafted, equipped, got his fingers into the clay to shape and mold. The events that happened in your past your accomplishments, your experiences, the things that you've invested in, that you've come to know in the past, they are of value. They are important to people then, but they can also be important and brought into the present future and used now to bring new life into other people's lives. Think of the things that you have learned and you have studied. You can use that to help somebody else grasp the truth about the world around them or about God and your relationship with him. Think of the adversity that you have come through in the past. That means you have blazed a trail that other people are going to try and walk down. Don't let them have to carve out their own path. You can show them the path through adversity. The areas where perhaps you have failed or you have regrets, God can take that and redeem it in the present by helping you to encourage others to avoid the same mistakes you made. If you are older, the youth want to hear from you. The youth need your wisdom. They need to know that you care about them. You've blazed a trail. Show them the way down that path, especially through the difficult years of, of teenage and young adulthood. 
If you're younger, the older people need to learn how to use their phones. You can teach them to program their phones. There's other things too. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, even if you are brand new to the faith, you are a step ahead of somebody else. may not be a step ahead of everybody else, but you are a step ahead of somebody else. And there's somebody that you, even early on in your faith, can speak into their lives. And if you are a part of West Meadows, if you are part of this church here, we need you. We need you to fulfill our vision to bring new life to Lewis Farms and beyond. We need you for that. Imagine what it could look like if West Meadows is a place where everyone can lean, learn, and lead. I believe that we would see new life in the people, in the homes, in the community all around us. So I leave you with this question. Who's your Paul? Who's your Barnabas? Who's your Timothy? These three important relationships that we can invest in. If you need help finding those, identifying those in your life, Come talk to me. Come, come talk to Andrew, any, anybody on staff who can help you with that. That's what we want to do is help people move into these types of things. We want to encourage you in those relationships that you can find that, that brother, that sister that sticks closer than anyone else, any, more than an acquaintance. But that verse that I read earlier of finding one who sticks closer than a brother, that finds its fulfillment, its ultimate fulfillment in understanding our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we want to help you have a relationship with one another. We also want to make sure, first and foremost, that you have a relationship with him. Because he is the one who will never leave you, who will never reject you. He is the one in whom we can trust and in whom we can love. Before you ever heard his name, he already knew your name. And he had already invested in you. By teaching us about the kingdom of God by living to give us an example to follow, and ultimately by giving his life to pay the price for our sins so that we can know what it is to be set free. We can know what it is to be free of the, of the shame and the guilt and to be in eternal life with our Heavenly Father. That's when we gather around the communion table, that's what we come together once a month to celebrate. So I want to invite the servers if they would come join the front of the table here. Because see, on the communion table, we see that Jesus gave. Jesus, Jesus invested himself so that we could be free from sin. On the table is the bread, which is symbolic of his body. His body, which was given, which, which was broken, which suffered all the brutality that humanity could muster against it, that he surrendered to for you. We also have the cup, symbolic of his blood, which was poured out to cover over a multitude of sins. And we get together to talk about how once a month we get together to take communion and talk about how his body and his blood, his body was sown into the ground like a seed. But then three days later it broke forth to new life and offers new life to all people. This table is open to anybody who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's also an open invitation to those who have not yet done so to make that decision today. So we're going to give you a moment now just to, to prepare your hearts in the, in the quiet of that moment to, to reflect and, and to confess to God anything you may need to get right with him before we receive these elements. But also, if you have never made that profession of faith, if you have never accepted Jesus' forgiveness, you can do that in this moment simply by saying in your heart where you sit right now, Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I need your forgiveness. I need that forgiveness that was made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for giving your life for my sins. I now give you mine. Amen. And if you pray those words, then we welcome you to partake in these elements with us. Let's just take a moment.